Hey, this is Richard, and I'm back, and this is the third episode of the Toki Yukamea podcast. I don't want to waste any more of your time, so let's just get right into the show. But before we start, you know the drill, it's recap time. In the last episode, we ended with Mariner finally getting some much-needed rest after a nice bath. And not just a refreshing cow cow, but also a bloodbath. There was death and carnage everywhere. Over 20 members of his crew are laid side by side on the deck, and they're all dead, and all of them have the sign of head trauma. Their heads were bashed in with clubs. He's taken off the boat and onto the island, and as he's walking on the island, uh, people are throwing things at him, hitting him, uh, comparing their skin to him, and making the remarks that he kind of looks like a buaca after you prepare it to be roasted. As they're walking, he finally finds out what happens to Captain Brown, and Captain Brown is dead. And then he sees three bodies, his three crewmates that left the ship because they wanted to go have a good time on the island. They're also dead. He sees a fire in the distance and he thinks they're going to cook him and eat him. Mmm, yum, yum, yum. They strip him naked and parade him around town. But this kind Tongan lady puts together something to cover him with made from the leaves of the sea plant. So they took him to a fale and the men who took him uh, all sat down and drank kava in uh, preparation for the arrival of a very important chief. But then the plans changed, and so the new instructions was to take uh, William Mariner to the residence of this chief. And so on his way there, he runs into one of the Hawaiians, and he tells Mariner that this chief has sent for him. And this is where we are introduced to one of the most prominent figures in this story, and one of the most intriguing character and chief in all of Tongan history. And his name is Finau Ulukalala II. Mariner wakes up the next morning to a very peculiar scene. He says, On getting up the next morning, I was much surprised at perceiving everybody with their heads shaved, a practice which is always adopted at the burial of Tuitonga, a great personage whose body was buried this day. So in his second day in Tonga, uh, Mariner is already witnessing some of the uh, rituals and some of the protocols associated with the death of uh, Tuitonga. And at this time, that Tuitonga was Maulupe Kotofa. Interestingly, uh, Mariner doesn't make any mention of who this Tuitonga is. Because the thing we have to remember is that his book is an account. So he is actually um, giving an account of his experiences in Tonga to the author, who is John Martin. And this was done like in his 30s. Okay, I'm not sure when it was done, but it was like way after he had left Tonga and moved back to England. So at this time, I've 
I just feel like Mariner should have known who it was, and I'm surprised that he didn't make any mention of it. And so I had to do a little digging around to find out what the history was of this particular Tuitonga. And maybe this is a good time to really look into the politics of Tonga at that time, because that kind of fills in a lot of gaps in this story. During this time, there were three chiefly lines in existence in Tonga. And that was Tatui Tonga, which came first, and then Tatui Hatakalaua, and then Tatui Kanukpolu. And as mentioned before in previous podcasts, Tatui Tonga line was the very first line, and it started back in, they estimate, 900 AD, around that time. And the very first Tatui Tonga was Aho Eitu. Aho Eitu's father was Tangaloa Eitu Matupua, and his mother was Ilaheva Vaepopua. And the story goes like this. One day, Ilaheva was out in low tide, and she was doing what we call in Tonga Fangota. She was digging around for shellfish. And can I just say, when I was little, my mom used to take me and my siblings to go Fangota with her and some of the women in my dad's village. And uh, I just remember it was not fun. So Ilaheva is out and, she, you know, she's doing her Fangota thing and feeling around for shellfish, which is what you do. And uh, Tangaloa Eitumatupua notices her beauty from the skies. Yes, he lived in the skies and he looked down and he saw this beautiful woman who was uh, digging around for shellfish. And so he slides down the toa tree. Toa is uh, ironwood. And there was a giant ironwood tree that grew from the surface of where all the mortals lived. And it grew all the way up and reached the skies. And so he slid down the ironwood tree. So according to the text, they got together and they cohabitated, which means they had sex. And so Tangaloa Eitu Matupua would come down several times. Okay, let me just tell you something. I really love our old legends and I love just how matter of fact it is. Yeah, he came down to have sex with her and they did it several times. And I'm sure it was probably sideways, upside down, whatever. And the first place where they made love is named Mohenga. And so reading from Gifford's Tongan Myths and Tales, we read, The god ascended to the sky by the big Kasarina, which is the ironwood tree, but again returned to the woman. They went and slept on the island of Talakite, and this is how Talakite got its name. They overslept and the day dawned, and there flew by a tern, T-E-R-N, called in Tongan Tala. And the tern found them. The turn cried, and the god Eitumatupua awoke, and he called to Ilaheva, Wake up, it is day, and the turn has seen us, because we have overslept. So that island is called Talakite. Tala meaning the turn, the seabird that saw them sleeping, and then Kite meaning saw. Another island where they made love was Mata'aho, which means eye of day. Tangaloa Eitumatupua returned to the sky and came back again, and you know, you know the drill by now, yes? And surprise, Ilaheva is knocked up. She is pregnant. She is carrying a baby. Meanwhile, Tangaloa Eitumatupua is dwelling in the sky. She gives birth to a young male baby. And so Ilaheva is taking care of this baby while Tangaloa is up in the sky. 
And then one day he's just like, hey, I better check up on that lady that I knocked up. And so he decides to come back down. And so he climbs down the ironwood tree to check up on Ilaheva. He says, Ilaheva, what is our child? And she answers, a male child. And then he says, his name shall be Ahoetu. The day has dawned. Moreover, the god asked the woman, is the soil of your land clay or sand? And she says, my place is sandy. And then the god says, wait until I throw down a piece of clay from the sky to make a garden for the boy Ahoetu and also a yam for the garden of our child. And so Tangaloa Eitu Matapua brought down yam from the sky. And near the village of Maufanga in Tongatapu is a, uh, well, they call it a mountain, but it's really more of a hill. And it's called Holohiufi. In this book, they translate Holohiufi as poor the yam. But holo in this context, so if you're talking about uh, plenty of yams, you're talking about rows and rows of yams. And they're all grown in like close succession because Tangaloa Eitumatapua really wanted his son to eat well. And, um, you know, we talked earlier in other episodes about yams. And so this is an example of how we see yam as a chiefly crop in our Tongan legends. And this specific variety of yam is called the Heketa. So pretty cool. And I love also just to learn about the uh, place names of some of the villages in Tonga. Okay, so then after that, Tangaloa Eitumatapua pretty much just like forgets that he has his kid. Okay, he goes back to the sky. Meanwhile, his son Aoetu is growing up here on the mortal realm. And then one day, uh, he just decides to ask his mom, Hey, uh, mommy, who is my daddy? So then his mom explains to him, Your dad is Tangaloa Eitumatapua and he came down from the sky. And uh, we fool around, fool around, and that's how you came to be. And then Aoetu was like, I want to go to the sky so I can see my father, but there's nothing for me to go in. And then his mother instructed him, Okay, just kidding. She didn't say that. Um, she gave him a tapa loincloth and anointed his head with oil, according to this uh, Tongan book of myths and legends. When he was ready, he asked, How will I know my father as I am not acquainted with his dwelling place in the sky? And his mother, Ilaheva, replied, You will go to the sky and proceed along the big, wide road. Okay, this is the kind of directions I hate. Okay, you ask for directions. Eh, you go and you look for the big tree, and then you look for the big, wide road, and then you look for the dock, and then you turn. Okay, back to the story. She says, you will see your father catching pigeons on the mound by the road. There must be like just one road where he lives, maybe. So Aoetu climbs up the big toa tree and reaches the sky. And he sees the road and he follows his mother's directions. He found the mound and he saw his father catching pigeons. And when his father saw him approaching, he sat down because he was overpowered at seeing his son. So he's just going to knock up his mom and then leave him on the earth and give him yams and then go back to the sky and then just forget about him and all of a sudden he's overpowered okay 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 now i love this part because this is one of the evidence that we have that um in the past our people used to hongi and the first thing they did is uh, it says right here the lad went to his father and they pressed noses and cried and the father asked him, where have you come from? 
I have come from earth, sent by Ilaheva, my mother, to seek you, my father, Eitumatupua. And then he replies, oh, hey, that's me. I'm your daddy. And then they pressed noses again, and then they cried. And uh, Eitumatupua was just so overwhelmed at the realization that this was his son, you know, the son he left behind. So they leave um, the mound where he was doing his pigeon hunting, and they go to Eitumatupua's residence. And they had kava and some food. And so later in that day, uh, the celestial sons of Eitumatupua. So this is funny because like there's a they make this distinction, right? So Ao Eitu was like the earth trash son. And the other sons that uh, Eitumatupua had with, uh, well, they don't even mention it, are his celestial sons. Because, you know, he had those sons with a, uh, with a goddess. Whereas Ilaheva was, you know, just a mortal woman. And so Aoetu goes and watches them and they're playing like uh, different types of sports games. One of them being uh, Sika. And Sika is like, I think the closest thing we have to it is Javelin. And so he goes over there and he watches them playing Sika. And nobody there knows who he is or where he's from. But they're all just like staring at him because apparently Aoetu was really hot and well formed, it says. And his celestial brothers all noticed that he was drawing a lot of attention. And so they became haters. And then when they found out that he was their brother and that his mother was from Earth, you know, she was Earth trash. And they're like, oh, hell no. And they were very angry and very jealous that this person was their brother. Okay, I'm sorry, but this family sounds totally effed up. Anyway, what did the brothers do? They tore him to pieces. And then they cooked him and ate him. See what I mean? Uh, the family is messed up. His father comes looking for him, but he cannot find him. And so he's asking around, where is the lad? And his sons all told him, oh, we don't know. We don't know what happened to him. But Tangaloa Eitumatupua was suspicious because he probably knows that his sons are just a bunch of bastards. And so he was like, come here and vomit. And he brought a big kumete. And he forced them to tickle their throats. And as they tickled their throats, they vomited up the flesh of Ahoetu and also his blood and all the parts that they had eaten. He asked them, where is his head? And the brothers were like, oh, we threw it in the bush, in the hoi bush over there. And so he made them go and get the head and put it in the kumete. And so into the kumete goes his flesh, his blood, bones, and now they have the head. And then they pluck the leaves of the nonu tree. And they put the leaves inside the kumete as well. They poured in water and then they covered it with more nonu leaves. And then they put the kumete bowl aside, visiting it occasionally to pour out the water. Eventually, the flesh of his body and his bones and everything came together and Ahoetu was alive. Now, you're probably all wondering, what the hell does this have to do with this story? But I promise you, there is a connection. So Aoetu is fully restored and he is alive. And his father tells him to bring him into the house. And in the presence of Aoetu and all his brothers, their father declares that Aoetu is going to be the ruler of Tonga. At this point, his brothers were so remorseful for what they have done and so... It was their desire to follow Ahoetu to the mortal realm where they would serve him for the rest of their lives. And so Ahoetu and his brothers came back to the mortal realm and he became the very first Tuitonga. 
And so from Ao Eitu's brothers come some of the well-known titles in Tonga that we know of today. Um, so let's go over the brothers. The brothers, um, these remember, these are all Ao Eitu's older brothers, the celestial brothers. Talafale being one of them, Matakehe, Maliepo, Tuiloloko, and Tuifolaha. Talafale became the Tuifaleua, and this was supposed to be a spare um, title or dynasty in case Ao Eitu's line would die out. Um, he became also the Tuipelehake, um, and so that's a title I'm sure we all recognize today, um, and so it has endured since that time. Matakehe, his line became extinct during the reign of the Tuitonga Tuitatui. Maliepo and his descendants served as the Matabule for Ahoeitu, and Lawaki, um, the royal undertakers, so they're like the ones, um, the Nimatapu is what they call them, that are responsible for um, funerals for the royal family. And so Lawaki is a title that comes from the brother Maliepo. And so this is how the very first ruling um, dynasty of Tonga started. It all started with Ahoeitu being the first Tuitonga. And like I said before, what made the Tuitonga line really unique is that this belief that they were half God. And so every uh, succession since um, Ahoeitu, those were all uh, kings of Tonga that were also regarded as um, sacred deity. Now, it's important to state that um, when Mariner was in Tonga, you know, that Tuitonga was still around, but it still, it didn't have the political influence and definitely not the spiritual mystique and that reverence of deity that it had previously. So from Ahoeitu, we see um, generations and generations of Tuitonga from 950 AD to 1470 AD and then it split and we come to see that the split was for a very good reason it's because the people were sick of the Tuitonga and their shit and so they were getting assassinated left and right lots of assassinations which is really I don't know I think you know as a, um, a mere human when you have somebody ruling over you that is supposedly uh, part deity, but you see them displaying a lot of um, human characteristics and flaws, and then you kind of get the idea that, you know, maybe these people aren't so sacred. And one of my favorite quotes is, fear no man that bleeds. And I'm wondering if this is what happened. People just realize that, hey, these are like, they're mortals too. I mean, come on. Yeah. We're, we're all mortals, and yes, we have this lovely legend of you know, someone coming from the sky and impregnating a mortal, but we all bleed the same, right? Anyway, so an assassination on one of the Tuitongas resulted in a split of the Tuitonga line. And so the Tuitonga would still retain its um, responsibilities as the spiritual ruler of Tonga. And then the other line, this was the new line, was the Tuihatakalaua, and they would um, take over more of the political affairs. And so I'm not going to get into too much details about that because it actually will come into play in future episodes. So around 1550, um, he was the sixth one. He split the title again and he wanted to be more like the Tuitonga. And so splitting the title so that there is a secular title 
and a sacred title. And so that secular title came to be known now as the Tu'i Kanokpolu line. And the first holder of the Tu'i Kanokpolu line was a man by the name of Ngata. And Ngata's mother was uh, from Samoa, and her name was Tohu'ia. At the time of Mariner, uh, the Tu'i Kanokpolu line was like, basically, they were running the show. So the Tu'i Kanokpolu line, and even the Tu'i Tonga was still, uh, had some kind of cultural significance. But the Tu'i Hatakalaua line was pretty much squeezed out of the picture. And so for Mariner to witness um, the people in Tonga shaving their heads because of this Tu'i Tonga that passed away, it was such a big shift in cultural practices and maybe a little bit more humane because before they would do crazy shit like strangling the wives of a Tu'i Tonga. So if you were a wife of a Tu'i Tonga and let's say you weren't uh, with child, um, you would be a prime candidate to be choked and strangled and be buried along with the Tu'i Tonga. So, uh, yay for progress. Yay! Okay, I apologize for that long detour, but I feel like I need to uh, lay down the foundation for that because in future episodes, this is all going to come back into play into some of the things that Mariner will be involved in. Okay, so Mariner wakes up, he witnesses these people with their heads shaved, and um, Finau Ulkalala takes him back to the ship. And um, Mariner was actually very happy because he got to see uh, some of his crewmen survive. They weren't all slaughtered. And so he was happy to see that uh, 14 of them um, were still alive. And so uh, Finau Ulkalala gave the orders to bring the ship close to shore. And uh, they were given the orders to cut the cables, work her in the shore, and they did throw through a very narrow passage through the reef. And you all remember Tui Tui, the Hawaiian, he consulted with Finau Ulkalala that um, they're going to need about 400 men to strip all the iron from the ship. And they did exactly just that. So right when Finau Ulkalala gave the orders, they implicitly obeyed. And Mariner documents, he was just impressed. They sat down, not a word was spoken, nor the least perceptible noise made by them during the whole time, no more than if none of them were on board. You know, when I read that, I just thought that was awesome. That's one of the things that I really love about being Tongan and working and collaborating together with other Tongans, uh, because we really come together to get huge tasks done. And I think a lot of that is in our DNA as Tongan people going back um, to so many centuries of Tauhitu'i, right? Or the other explanation is that everyone was just scared shitless of Finau Ulukalala. And for a very good reason, as we will find out. And so Mariner uh, in his book says that two or three days, that's how long it took for them to uh, strike down the mass and also um, carry the carronades. So those were like the small cannons onto the shore, eight barrels of gunpowder, and then stripping the upper works of iron, knocking the hoops off of cask. Basically anything that had iron, it was stripped. And so interestingly, 29 years before uh, when Captain Cook was in Tonga, this was one of his concerns was that Tonga was becoming, or Tongans were becoming too dependent on iron. And so they were discarding their stone and bone tools 
in favor of um, iron. In his journals, he says, I own, I cannot avoid expressing it as my real opinion that it would have been far better for these people never to have known our superiority in the arts that make life comfortable. You know what? That's some racist crap. I'm not going to read the rest of that. So basically, the idea is that 30 years later, Tongans were addicted to iron and metal, and they wanted all those nice things. And so the theory is, is that the iron tools that Captain Cook gave them 30 years before that were already worn out, and the presence of the Porto Prince was an opportunity for them to you know, refresh their current supply of weapons. So when Finau's people were trying to remove the hoops from the casks, they didn't realize that there was oil in it. And so the oil burst out and suffocated eight of the natives. And this was like their first exposure to oil. Mariner documents that, you know, they were fascinated by just the, the properties of oil and how viscous it was and how it was hard for them to like swim in it and the next part is just crazy because this kind of gives us an idea of just how Finau Ulukalala and the way he thinks so he notices one of his people and they're up on the main uh, mast and described as a low fellow and so he was up there cutting iron stripping the iron and um, Finau Ulukalala didn't feel that he should have taken such a liberty it says maybe he was a little too extra or a little too mafana you know how we tend to be he was just really uh, annoying and so he got one of the hawaiians so you know the hawaiians knew how to use the muskets and so he told one of the hawaiians who had a musket with him to uh, shoot him down yep and so he pointed his gun at him and he shot him down in the book it says without hesitation he leveled his piece and instantly brought him down dead the shot entered his body and then the fall broke his thighs and fractured his skull Finau laughed heartily and seemed mighty pleased at the facility with which it was done Damn! Mariner asked Finau Ulkalala how could he be seemingly cruel as to kill the poor man for so trifling at fault and he replied to Mariner, he was only a low, vulgar fellow, a cook, and that his life or death was of no consequence to society. Okay, that really hurts because I love to cook. Ah, I don't think I would have survived those times. On Tuesday, December 9th, um, the ship was floated and it was warped into the low water mark. And in the evening, they set fire to it. And so that was pretty much the end of the ship. However, there were still some guns that were on the ship and they were loaded. And so when they burnt the ship, um, some of the guns started exploding and it scared the natives. So Mariner had to assure all of them that they're going to be okay. Uh, don't worry. And um, in the book, he says, after the guns had ceased firing, I went down to the beach and found the ship burnt to the water's edge. I walked to the house again, filled with melancholy reflections. Retiring to my mat, sleep at length brought a temporary relief to my afflictions. And so, remember going back to the first episode and there was um, a story that they found the remains of the Port-au-Prince just off of the coast of Foa. Now, there are a lot of skeptics who doubt that that is the remains of the Port-au-Prince because in the book we see that uh, Mariner, you know, he describes that the ship was pretty much burnt and there was nothing left. The next morning, Mariner and some of the men from uh, Finau Ulukalala's group 
uh, went back to the beach and they were able to retrieve five of the carronades uh, by tying a rope around them and dragging them to the shore. And then a few days later, they dragged three more carronades on shore and also four long guns. So in the following weeks, um, Mariner mostly stayed indoors. And this was from the following the advice of Fina Ulkalala to just stay indoors because, you know, even though he was under the protection of Fina Ulkalala, but, you know, Tongans being Tongans, they were just still kind of like giving him a hard time. And I don't know if they were just like joking with him because, you know, sometimes our jokes get out of control. And Fina Ulkalala was probably just like, oh, this little fragile Palangi boy, just stay inside and don't go outside. So on the 16th day of December, Fina Ulkalala goes to Uiha and they go to Uiha to shoot rats. Yeah, let's go and shoot rats for fun. Okay. And so they were there in Uiha for three to four days. And Mariner mentions that the inhabitants of this island made great rejoicings on account of Finau's arrival. And Mariner mentions that rats are frequently used as an article of diet by the lower orders, but the chiefs shoot them merely for amusement. Yummy! And then the next story is just funny. Uh, Mariner's talking about how he had a watch. And so the natives in Uya were just so fascinated by this watch that he had. And he says, Every hand was now outstretched with eagerness to take hold of it. It was applied in turns to their ears. They were astonished at the, the noise that it made. And they listened to it, turned it on every side, and exclaimed, Okmoui, meaning it's alive. They pinched it, they hit it, expecting that it would squeak out. They looked at each other with wonder and laughed out loud, snapping their fingers and made a clucking noise with the tongue, expressing their amazement. One brought a sharp stone for me to force it to open. I opened it in the proper way and showed them the works. Several endeavored to seize hold of it at once. He who got it ran away with it and all the rest after him. In about an hour, they returned the watch completely broken to pieces. One had the case, another the broken dial, and the wheels and works distributed amongst them. Then they gave me the fragments and made signs for me to put it together and make it do as it did before, upon which I gave them to understand that they had killed it and that it was impossible to bring it to life again. The man who considered it his property exclaimed, Mau Maui, which means it's spoiled, and made a hissing noise expressive of disappointment. He accused the rest of using violence, and they in turn accused him. While they were thus in high dispute, there came another native who had seen and learned the use of a watch on a French ship. When he understood the cause of their dispute, he called them all Kauvale, a pack of fool, and explained in the following manner the use of the watch. And so then this man explains to his fellow Tongans how a watch works, and they were just all amazed. And after he was done telling them that, uh, they all exclaimed, Fonua Poto, which means, oh, what a smart country. And then this guy was like so proud because he knew how a watch works. And so, and he was calling himself a Papalangi or like he is like a European. On the 20th of December, a Mariner and Fina Ulkalala and their crew returned back to Lifuka. And he says, my life was still not only uncomfortable, but often exposed to many dangers. Or at best, I suffered many insults from the wantonness and malevolence of the lower orders. And then he mentions that Tui Tui, remember Tui Tui, the Hawaiian? He was also a hater, hater. And every opportunity that he got, he was trying to persuade Fina Ulkalala to get rid of 
mariner and get rid of the other survivors in case another European ship comes through and discovers what happened to the Porto Prince. However, Fina Ulkalala didn't agree with him and in the book, um, he says, or Mariner says, he convinced that white people were often too generous and forgiving a temper to take revenge and therefore declined doing us any further mischief. Finau had probably acquired this favorable idea of us from observing that Europeans were not accustomed to knocking out the brains of those under their command for every trifling offense. Well, aren't you just high and mighty, Mr. Mariner? Mariner had saved some of his uh, books and writing materials from the Porto Prince before they completely destroyed it. And so he would be writing or reading, and then one day, um, much to his dismay and shock, uh, Finau Ulkalala ordered that his books and all of his papers and writing materials be destroyed. Mariner comes to find out that Tuitui was telling um, Finau Ulkalala that every time Mariner was reading or writing, he was casting spells. Tuitui tells him that it was well known to Finau Ulkalala and many others that books and papers were instruments and means of invocation to bring down evil or plague upon their countrymen. And so he didn't really understand what this all meant until later in his life when uh, Finau Ulkalala explained to him a situation that happened. So apparently several years before all of this happened, um, there was a European ship that came through Tonga. And um, one of the men off the ship, one of the Palangi men, his name was Morgan, and he decided he wanted to live in Tonga. Sometime later, another European ship came, and this time they were missionaries who came to Tonga, and they built a church, and um, in the book it's described that they were white men that came and built a house in which they used often to shut themselves up to sing and perform ceremonies. So it sounds like these were missionaries who came to Tonga and built a church. And then shortly after that time, there was some kind of a epidemic that went through Tonga. And they don't know if it was like the flu or some kind of other uh, infectious disease. Um, but uh, it killed a lot of the natives. And uh, Morgan, so Morgan, the first person who came, uh, was telling people that... Um, this uh, epidemic was caused by the books that they were reading in this church. And so further rousing their suspicions is that these Balangis, who, these missionaries who built this, their church, they wouldn't allow Tongan people to be present in the church. And so they boarded up all the windows to prevent them from peeping through um, the any crevices or any holes that they're able to see through. And then they would use like filth and garbage and um, knowing that Tongans were very particular about being clean and they would, you know, put it around their church building to make sure that none of them come close to it. So Morgan told the chiefs, you see the effect of their incantations? Several of you are dying every day. By and by, and you will all be cut off and the king of England will take possession of your islands. For although you have the remedy in your power, you make no use of it. And then the chiefs were like, what the hell? And they all started panicking. And so they rushed upon the white men and killed all but three who were at the time under the protection of Beasi, a great chief. And Mariner was able to verify this story with Finau Ulkalala and also just some of the other chiefs that he talked to. Mariner also found out that the three that were under the protection of Beasi 
that they were killed in a civil war, and that was the custom of Tonga back in the day. If you were a foreigner and you were under the protection of a chief, and let's say the chief loses in battle, and every one of his people has to be killed, including the foreigners that are under his protection. And so at this、uh, battle, they chose to remain, urging for their reason that they had not quarreled with any of the Tongan people, and consequently they would not be hurt. But others informed them, however, that it was the Tongan custom not only to kill an enemy, but all his friends and relations, if possible. The three missionaries then replied that as they had done no harm and meant no harm, their God would protect them. At this moment, a party of natives who were lying in wait in a neighboring thicket rushed out and killed them with their spears. The natives in their canoe pushed off from the shore and made their escape. And then we come to find out that Morgan. So, this Balangi guy Morgan that started all of this, he was actually a prisoner who escaped from one of the penal colonies in Australia. Mariner then makes a very astute observation and he says, How necessary it is to know the customs of the country, how baneful it is to be presumptuous. Our best intentions may be ruined by the ignorance of the one and the influence of the other. And then he shares this really funny experience of himself and like the other、um, survivors. So remember, we read that there w a s 14 survivors. And he's talking about, you know, just how ignorant, ignorant they were of the language and the customs of the people. And one of those、um, instances of, of when he's talking about being ignorant was how to ask for food in Tongan culture. And so he says, Sometimes food was brought to us, but often not, and sometimes we were invited by the natives to walk into their houses and eat with them. But frequently we seemed to be quite neglected and were reduced to the necessity of procuring what we wanted by stealth. And so basically, if they were hungry, they had to steal food. At length, through Tutui's interpretation, I made known our wants to the king, talking about Fina Ulkalala. Upon which he seemed greatly surprised at our apparent stupidity and inquired how food was obtained in England. When he heard that every man procured the necessary supplies for himself and family by purchase, and that friends for the most part only partook by invitation, and that strangers were scarcely ever invited unless with a view of forming an acquaintance, He laughed at what he called the ill nature and selfishness of the white people. And he told me that the Tongan custom was far better, and that I had nothing to do when I felt hungry but to go into any house where eating and drinking were going forward, sit myself down without invitation, and partake with the company. After this, the natives made this selfishness, as they considered it of the Europeans, quite proverbial. When any stranger now came into their houses to eat with them, they would say jocosely, No, we shall treat you after the manner of the Papalangis. Go home and eat what you have got, and we shall eat what we have got. That is like so Tongan humor. Eventually, Mariner and、um, five of his companions、um, they were just like totally sick of it. And sick of life in Tonga, and they wanted to just go home. And so they requested、uh, to Finau Ulkalala if he could give them a large canoe, and then they will rig it and they will try to make their way to Australia. And so 
in the process of building this uh, rig that they were going to use to escape Tonga, um, they break one of the axes. And so Fina Ukalala is like, ah, no more. You are not going to touch any more of the axis. And so they weren't able to finish um, their canoe. And Mariner says, it became more than ever necessary to conform our minds to the manners and customs of the people we were among. In a short time, the ever-changing events of war served to create a degree of activity in the mind destructive of habits of disagreeable reflections and fruitless regrets. And we are going to end this episode right there because in the next one, we go right into the wars. And so Mariner is like completely involved in the wars because he's really the only one um, aside from some of his uh, fellow crewmen that were with him who knows how to use the those little cannons. We also learn that some of his crewmen have like dispersed to some of the other islands in Tonga. So there's only a few that remained with them in Ha'apai. Thank you all for tuning in again to another episode of the Toki Ukamea podcast. And um, if you have any questions, please send them in to me, rwolfgram at gmail.com, r-w-o-l-f-g-r-a-m-m at gmail.com. Or actually, no, I was going to say leave a question on our voicemail on our anchor page. But uh, some of you told me that the voicemail does not allow you to leave messages longer than a minute or something like that and that's absolutely garbage so i have created a google voice number just for this show if you want to call and leave a voicemail with your question that number is 385-347-0906 and one more time 385-347-0906 and I would love to hear from some of you. So if you have any questions, shoot them my way. Uh, thank you again for listening. I appreciate all of you, especially um, I have ran into some of you and in person and you've just uh, been telling me how much you enjoy the podcast. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening. And let's do this again next week. Malo Alpito. Malo Alpito.